Greetings, people. Douglas Day with Booksmart. Last week we had a special guest reader, our sound man, Mr. Nigel Lewis Stevenson. Nigel, thank you for doing that. Yes, sir. Mr. Ross. Hey, Douglas. Hey, Nigel. Mr. Ross, did you get a chance to listen to Nigel read your chapter 13? I did. I thought he did a great job, and it was especially interesting to hear him sing some of the text. I certainly did not expect that. Thank you, sir. Yes, he did. He sang for us, didn't he? Didn't you, Nigel? Yes, sir. Well, on today's docket, Mr. Ross is back to read chapters 14 and 15 of Hard Water, Part 2, Alabaster Dreams. Today's program is brought to you by The Twelve Steps to Natural Gardening by Mr. Al Crowter, K-R-U-T-T-E-R, a nurseryman for 45 years. Late in his career, he, he changed over to strictly organic gardening. When I say that, I mean... He used no chemicals, no pesticides. And lo and behold, his plants became much more healthy. This time of year, when the leaves come down, Al would tell you, don't bag them up. Shred them and let them decompose on your lawn. The best thing you can do for your lawn is to give it organic feed. No chemicals, people. No chemicals. You do not want to damage the rhizosphere, the food web that grows beneath our feet. It's very fragile, but will work very hard for you if you feed it correctly with organic material, compost. Mr. Ross, would you like to say anything about today's chapters? Well, um, just that we are going to have a bit of healing going on for Mr. Goodall via talk therapy. In other words, he is brought into the farmhouse and Ruth, the farm girl, helps him to deal with his issues. Mm. He's going to be leaving the hayloft, as it were. Yeah, he's going to leave the hayloft and come inside to the farmhouse. Right. Well, whenever you're ready, Mr. Ross, yam on. Chapter 14 Goodall said he was happy in the hay igloo, said that the young girl spooked him since he'd seen her dragging that stillborn calf back behind the barn. Even though late November nights had pulled the temperature way down low, said what would happen if the parents came in, said he could conquer his demons on his own, said the demons were decreasing. Bullshit artist, said I. I don't think so, W.R. I don't think your demons are decreasing. I don't think you look too good, either. Your eyes are shot through with that two-mile stare, and bags hang underneath like big black cobwebs, and you're shaking, W.R. Notice that? Notice you're shaking? The farm dog, Blaze, strains the chain and bounces on his front paws when we amble by. Don't look at him, W.R., don't even look at him. He'll stop barking once he figures we ain't gonna run scared. 
He's used to seeing me. He's just spooked by the two of us. We make it through the back door and up the stairs and into the back bedroom lickety-split. Goodall stands leaning against the wall, staring at the bed like it's filled with red-hot coals. Come on, W.R., take her easy. That bed don't have no truck with you. It don't want to whip you. It It just wants to do what good beds do. Rest you. I hoist a full pitcher of water and fill two glasses and hoist the glass to my lips and drain the contents fast. Goodall is sweating like all get out. I grab him before he slides right down the wall and place him on the bed near the door. Once I get him lying back, I wipe down his sweaty brow. He's fevering up a storm. I keep the towel on his skull and try to get some water down his parched gullet, but he only gurgles it up or spits it out in the course of one of his moans. Shh, W.R., shh. Her mammy and pappy be coming back soon and we don't need no ruckus. A couple times he jerks up and fever stares into the gloaming distance at the end of his bed and points his finger out at an unseen demon. I stuff a bundled bunch of towel into his maw to keep the noise down. Listen, whether they could or could not hear Goodall's moaning was not the issue. I could hear, and too much of that dithering could drive me back over the edge. Dear reader, the farm girl comes in and Goodall melts like butter. He looks upon her as if she were an angel come creeping down from heaven. His head sinks back into the pillow And he surveys her, surveys his limbs, surveys the window and the half-moon rising, looks over at me and back at her. Then his eyes shut tightly as he drifts off to sleep. I take the next couple of hours to reimagine my life on the farm with my own Ruth back home. Yes, I wonder what she'll make of me, damaged and all. Oh, shucks, Ruth was Ruth and Ruth was truth. She'd make do, that's what. Certainly. If my hand got worse, there were some chores I wouldn't be able to manage, but all in all, we'd make do. We'd figure out a way. I'd doze some more in the darkness. Goodall's demons had tracked him down and were now scraggling after me too. His demons were big and bad and they puffed up and darted away real quick into the corners like phantom rats. They grabbed a hold of my eyes and plucked them or grabbed a hold of my heart and ripped it out but I reached up and grabbed my eyeballs back and my heart back and I yelped, These are mine. Closed my eyes up real tight and heard Blaze bark and heard his chain rattle and the door open a crack and I laid stock still, so still. Let my eyes gently shift open and saw the blonde hair on her head looking down the hall towards her paw's room. And then she quickly stepped inside with the candle and the demons screeched back and plastered themselves tightly against the wall as she nimbly sat in her rocker and whispered, Well, I see you got him to abandon the hayloft, huh? Yes. He passed out from a fever a few hours ago, and I think he'll sleep from now to... I'm not sleeping. I'm not sleeping. I'm dreaming. I'm dreaming. I'm here, there, everywhere. The girl and I looked at one another. She put a finger to her lips. Goodall continued. A great peace has come over me. I have recently felt the storm of many seas... I've been welcomed into God's kingdom. I've been pardoned of my sins. He turns his head on the pillow and looks at Ruth. Hello, angel. How doth thee do? How do thee doth? How thee do do? How thee doth do? She begins to speak, but Goodall shushes her. Shh! Shh! I know how it goes with you, my angel, my angel of repose. I see you don't want me to quit my earthly pilgrimage altogether. 
turns his head toward me and blinks his eyes. The raft of demons flatten themselves further against the wall but shift slightly from side to side as if they're cogitating whether to slip under the door or out through the window. Darling, he says, can you see them? Can you see them? What shall we do with them, my darling angel? Ruth says we could pierce and pop them with the tip of the candle's flame. Ah, yes, says Goodall. We could, we should. How about I point and you stab? Shut the window so they don't slink away. Goodall sits up in his bed. His eyes are blazing blue, points his finger into the darkened corner of the room, and the young girl stabs the guttering candle into the blackness. Goodall grows less and less manic as each demon dispels into a scorched, deflated absence. As Ruth's candle burns down, Goodall's head lulls back onto the pillow and his eyes droop shut. Ruth takes her seat in the rocking chair and holds the candle steadily. She smiles at me warmly, puts her finger to her lips, stands, paces over to the corner and stabs the eager flame of the candle into the very furthest outpost of darkness, returns to her chair with a satisfied smile. Benign shadows bounce from side to side on the ceiling. I nestle further underneath the covers. Ruth inspects me, then very quietly stands and leaves the room. I blink and nod off again. When I wake in the morning, I gaze at my neighbor. His face radiates peace, but his arms are folded corpse-like across his chest. I maintain my gaze on his body until I see his chest rise and fall. Then I, too, take a deep breath, inhale the morning air, and close my eyes anew. Chapter 15 The last of the sun's rays stream in through the golden cotton curtains. Goodall speaks with his eyes closed. Don't know much about terrapin turtles, but I do know I hit a bird off a wire with my wrist rocket once and it plummeted to the ground, but was still alive until me and a buddy dropped a big stone on it. Yup. We smashed it dead and I ran home shaking and crying because I felt so bad about what I'd done. To this day, I beg that bird's forgiveness. Ruth rocks steadily. Funny thing is, Goodall continues, I told myself I'd never kill again, but then one time me and some boys went on some boys club junket and we toured this farm and milked some cows and gathered some eggs and fished the pond. While we were fishing, one of the boys hollered, Looky here! A big bullfrog. We all ran over to look. I took out my wrist rocket and placed a perfectly circular creosote ball into its pocket and with one shot I caved in the back of that bullfrog's head so he slumped and floated dead across the pond. When the farmer and our field leader came down to check on us, they seen the deceased glinting bullfrog, and the farmer said, Bullfrogs don't just up and die. One of you boys killed him. And I'll have you know that bullfrog was a kingly saint who kept the bugs down, boys. And right now, one of you got to confess to killing because it ain't right, see? Silence. A slight breeze blew the dead bullfrog in silent circles. Which one of you? Which one of you done it? The farmer's eyes were blazing blue behind his glasses and a triangular gray beard hung from his chin. Worn overalls hung from his shoulders, and his sleeves were folded perfectly, and his forearms were large and tanned, and his eyes drilled into each and every one of us, and then they lit on me. 
My eyes fell down to the shallow water lining the edge of the pond. Our field leader spoke from close behind me. What do you have in your back pocket? Good all. My wrist rocket, sir. My tears blurred all I could see. Pull it out, good all. I reached around and held out the weapon that I had used to kill that frog. I felt the farmer's eyes burn into me through his glasses, and I heard the moos of the cows and the spring breeze riffle through the overhanging branches of the willow tree, and I couldn't look. I couldn't look into the farmer's piercing eyes. I dissolved further into tears and apologies drooled out of my mouth, and I hoped the worst was over, but the farmer stood next to me and said, Son... You have done killed one of God's creatures and you had no right to. How would you feel? And he took his pointer finger and stabbed it right into the center of my forehead. If someone took a wrist rocket and loaded it up with a creosote railroad ball and let that baby go and it came hurtling through the wide open sky at full speed and it buried itself into the back of your head and shut your lights off for good. How would you feel about that, son, huh? Not too good, I uttered. Our field leader gave me a hanky with which I wiped my teary face. The rest of the boys had taken a knee. I decided I was cried out enough, so I met the farmer's eyes. I said, sorry, sorry, I'm sorry. They took my wrist rocket, and then the farmer asked if he could take us boys up to the house where he was going to show us how to make things right. The steely-eyed old farmer reached down and grabbed a hold of that spread-eagled bullfrog with its busted head and bulging eyes and tongue lolled out and hoisted it up and said, This old bull done a good job keeping the bugs down. We all bowed our heads like him, but snuck looks at each other, still so scared and nervous about this farmer and his piercing eyes. Now, said the farmer, let's go make this right. You, killer. Take this frog, and he handed it to me. The weight of its death in my hands hung down and shocked me. How limp it was after having just been alive. What I had done was wrong, wrong, wrong. I wanted to make things right. When the farmer turned toward the house, I joined steps with him and took on his same determined manner. We stepped up the back steps into the farmhouse. His round, balding wife turned from the sink and her glasses hid a subtle look of alarm until she saw me and the dead bullfrog upraised slightly like an offering. The farmer went to the sink to wash his hands, and she moved quickly aside and wiped her hands on her apron, and the farmer instructed her to get a mixing bowl and some buttermilk and some breadcrumbs and to grease the skillet well. Then he got the cutting board out, sculpted in the shape of E-A-T, and he pulled down a fillet knife from the wall hanger and turned and gestured to me with the point of the knife. I brought forth the deceased bullfrog like an offering, and he placed it belly down on the cutting board, and in a trio of short, sharp, shocked motions cut off its head, cut off its back and front feet, twisted it around towards him and pried his fingers under the skin, and in one fell motion stripped the entire green skin right off the dead frog like a glove, revealing a slick, pink musculature. Then he cut off the plump back legs and washed and scrubbed them in the sink, then dropped them into the mixing bowl his wife provided. He splashed some buttermilk on top of the plump legs and sloshed them up with his hands, and then dropped them into the bowl of breadcrumbs and then placed them into the grease skillet to fry. 
Lordy, how they sizzled, spit, and spat. And he turned them this way and that with a long-handled fork, then pulled them out and put them on a plate. The six of us boys sat down on the hard-worn benches of the kitchen table and he cut those frog legs into nibs. And he passed the plate around and we all took a piece of the fresh brown frog meat and pinched it with our fingers. Once we all had a piece, he prayed, Lord, bless the bounty of this saintly bullfrog who presided over our pond and kept the bugs down. Amen. Then he looked at us with those steely blue eyes, but mostly me, and bade us eat the frog's legs right there and then. And some of us city boys just couldn't do it, had to spit it out or couldn't even bring it to our mouths. But he looked mostly at me in a determined manner and I did not want to disappoint him, so I plunked the chunk of frog leg into my mouth and swallowed it whole without chewing. And he smiled for the first time and said, Now, son, you have halfway redeemed yourself somewhat for you have not wasted God's bounty. Yes, son, you are still a sinner, but you have taken the first step towards atonement. Next time you think about killing something, I hope you remember this frog, and I hope you'll put that gun down. You put that wrist rocket down. You put that knife down. You put that bayonet down. You put it all down, and you don't kill no more. You hear me, boy? At the conclusion of his story, Goodall nodded back asleep. I looked over to Ruth, and she solemnly put Roy Campbell's the flaming terrapin back on the nightside table, got up, turned, smiled ever so slightly, and left the room. I, myself, I, my own self, recommenced sleeping shortly thereafter. Who keeps giving me all of these wishes? And who keeps giving me all of these dreams? And who do I tell all of my wishes? And who do I tell all of my Somebody Somebody yeah. Cause I can't keep sending them out there And all they're catching is it And I wanna give all my dreams to somebody Send my dreams out there When all they're 
kitchen is in I'll save all my dreams for somebody I want to thank you For giving me all of these dreams Your kindness is truly astounding And I think I can make it With love With somebody Looking for Somebody by the McMahoney Band. This has been Booksmart with Douglas Day. Until next time, peace.